what defines you? Advertising agencies try really hard to answer this question for us. They're always trying to work hard to, to convince us that we will be more lovable, more praiseworthy, more popular, more acceptable, more secure, or whatever, if we use whatever particular product they're selling. You know this. You can think of some of the commercials you've seen. Right? Car commercials want you to think of yourself and your life in relation to the type of vehicle you drive. Right? Your life will be better and you will be way cooler if you drive the same kind of car as Matthew McConaughey. You might even become better looking too. Beer commercials want you to think of your life in relation to uh, the brotherhood at the pub or party scene. Uh, one of the new taglines is actually really brilliant. It says, you're not just drinking beers, you're building friendships. Drink our brand of beer and you will find belonging. You'll have more friends. Life insurance commercials want you to think of your life in relation to your family. They give you all those really sentimental and touching scenes of like childhood and graduation and marriage and the first home. And, you know, you're kind of tearing up and they're like, what will happen to your family when you're gone? Like respectable people that love their families, they have life insurance. Technology advertisers want you to think of your life in relation to your social status. You're going to be the next big thing if you have the next big thing. After all, you'll also be able to connect with your family better. It's going to make your whole life more streamlined. You'll be happier. This is not to mention the hundreds of ads for soaps and deodorants and shampoos and foods that want you to think of your life in relation to your body. Use this soap, eat this food, wear this deodorant, and people will like you more because you smell and look good. That might be true, that one, I don't know. What defines you? What do you think of yourself and your life in relation to? I think the world tempts us to think of our life in relation to many things, but the Bible is relentless in exhorting us to think of our lives and ourselves in relation to one thing, one person. Scripture calls us again and again to put things in their proper perspective, to understand them in light of Christ. It doesn't deny uh, the existence or the goodness of things like cars and friends and beers and families and our own bodies, but it helps us to understand them in relationship to the God who made those things. They are all subservient. See, the Bible defines everything in relation to God because everything finds its true significance or insignificance in relation to God. It is this Christological, this uh, Jesus-centered perspective that Paul aims to remind the Corinthians and, of, and us of in his opening cadence in the book of 1 Corinthians, if you'll turn there. I know it's really weird going into 1 Corinthians instead of Exodus this week. Uh, I cried some tears at my desk. So wonderful to be in Exodus for so long. Uh, glad to be done. I hope that y'all enjoyed that study. Um, we are going to work through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're going to start at the beginning. Uh, I actually had intended to do all nine verses th this morning, um, but somewhere midway Friday I realized that I probably should take two sermons, uh, and these will be the two probably smallest chunks of text that we take in Corinthians, and then uh, we'll be covering it a little bit more quickly. Um, but really, Paul is pouring the foundation for the entire epistle here. 
And it's the same foundation upon which the Christian life is built. What I want to highlight for us, or to show you, is that, that we learn from these opening verses that Christians are those who are called to Christ, they're also called to be the church, and that we are empowered to be the church. Called to Christ, called to be the church, and empowered to be the church. Uh, be the church might be my summary statement for the whole book, and you're actually going to hear it a lot. We're going to say, be the church. That's Paul's ultimate exhortation to the Corinthians, if we could put it really simply. He, he's going to tell them, stop messing around, stop being silly, and just be who you are in Christ. Be the church. And more specifically for this sermon this morning, I want to exhort you to think of your life in relation to God. All that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll talk about context and setting and get into the text. Father, we desperately need you to enlarge our capacities to be moved by the immeasurable glories of Christ this morning. Pray that you would help us to consider things that we have taken for granted afresh. That you would meet us here in this time, in this space, in these few moments. And that you would truly be at the center of our thoughts and of our affections. And we would humble ourselves that we might hear from you. Sustain us through this time and help us to submit ourselves to your word. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so we do want to get a handle on who Paul is writing to before we jump in here. And he's writing to the Corinthians. And this is a church that he established in Acts 18 as a church planter. And he's since left and they've corresponded. And he's actually responding to some letters he's received from a lady named Chloe. She said, this is what's going on in the church. You probably want to address these things. And, and the Corinthians have also written him a letter and asked some questions. And so he's responding to all these uh, different questions that they have and some of the things that Chloe and her people have raised uh, but what's interesting about the Corinthian church is it's not exactly what we expect. You see, the Corinthian church has gone off the rails just a little bit. It, it's, it's straight up a mess, right? The church isn't marked by holiness, unity, and love, but by divisions, partisanship, sexual immorality, asceticism, and selfishness. I mean, throughout the epistle, we learned that these Christians are suing each other, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, they're using the gifts of the Spirit to make much of themselves instead of much of God, and this is just some of the stuff we know about. We're, we're even told in chapter 11 that their meetings or their assembling together to do church does more harm than good. There's even, I mean, in chapter 5 we're even confronted. They've got a guy who is sleeping with his stepmother, and they're saying, he's a Christian. And Paul's like, no, no, he, you need to do church discipline. That's not Christ-like living. You need to put him out. I mean, things are wild and crazy. What one pastor called uh, the Corinthian church, the church gone wild. And even though the Corinthian church is in need desperately of some correction and instruction, that's not where Paul starts. He begins not with rebuke, but with encouragement, with a reminder of who they are. He begins reminding them of their own calling. He begins by calling them saints or holy ones. He wants the Corinthians to remember who they are in Christ before he asks them to do anything because being precedes doing. He doesn't want them to just modify their behavior. 
He wants them to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ has changed their hearts and now they can live in light of who they are in him rather than in relation to the world. And so that's, that's kind of the stage that, that Paul is writing to. And so he, he opens his epistle. If you want to look at verse 1 in chapter 1 there, uh, he starts as he starts all of his epistles with the word Paul, right? Uh, you just memorize the first word of all of Paul's epistles. Be proud of yourself. Uh, because he starts with his name. That's how they wrote letters back then. It was actually made more sense. He's like, hey, uh, Paul, this is who's writing to you right at the front end instead of signing at the back end. Uh, if you try doing that today, it'll confuse people. Uh, but I think it was a better system. At any rate, this is what he writes. Paul called as an apostle of Christ, of Christ Jesus by or through God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called the saints with all those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul right away identifies himself and his life in relation to God. Right away he tells us that he is called to be an apostle by God's will. He's reminding the Corinthians of his role in God's kingdom, of his calling, and of his divine vocation. And in in just a minute, he's going to remind them, right in verse 2, of God's call on their lives. They are to be God's holy people. He he has this really strong self-understanding. I mean, Paul knows who he is in Christ. He knows his role. He knows who he is and and the part that he plays in God's plans, and he knows that all of that is only by God's will. Maybe to say it a little um, less muddy, (laughs) Paul can write so confidently because he understands his calling. Paul understands his calling. You, You can look in these first nine verses, and the word call or called or some variation of it is going to show up a whole lot. It's second only to uh, the name of Jesus, which is ten times in ten verses, because Paul wants us to uh, relate everything in our lives back to Christ. Christ is the center. But Paul can write confidently because he understands his calling, and God wants you also. He wants every one of his children to have this kind of solid and strong, clear self-understanding. Right? He, he wants you to be able to put your name in verse 1 with the appropriate changes. He wants you to be as confident as, as Paul. I wonder, can you put your name in verse 1? Right? Jimmy, called by the will of God to run a small engine repair shop for the glory of Jesus Christ. Susan, called by the will of God to sell Shackley for the glory of Jesus Christ. Stan, called by the will of God to be an accountant for the glory of Jesus Christ. Sarah, called by the will of God to be a homemaker for the glory of Jesus Christ. David, called by the will of God. Is it an excavator? Is that what you do? Excavation? Is that a good summary? To do whatever it is he does for the glory of God. Some of you in lots of names go here. We'll go with Herschel since he's not around. But, but Herschel called by the will of God to be retired for the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, there is a tremendous amount of stability that comes into your life when you let the Bible define who you are in relation to God rather than letting the world define you in relation to things or groups or your body. 
to, to know where you've come from in relation to God and where you are heading in relation to God and where you stand now in relation to God will make you free. It will make you free from the tyranny of insecurity and uncertainty because Christ holds you secure. Your past in Christ has been forgiven. Your current standing in Christ is right where he would have you be and your future is certain. You are free. You have been called to do exactly what God has you doing. I mean, it doesn't mean he's not ever going to call you to do something else, somewhere else. But it does mean right now, where you are right now, God has placed you there for his glory. We need to delight in this truth. This is God's will for you. You can't escape it. And you are to be bringing him glory through whatever it is you're doing. A great summary verse of all of Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians is found in chapter 10, verse 31. He says, whether you eat or drink or whatever it is you do, do everything for the glory of God. Do everything for the glory of God. People in, in ministry, people in full-time ministry, are not the only Christians with calling. I think that's a common misconception. No, to be a Christian is to be called. To be a Christian means that you are in full-time ministry, no matter what it is you're doing. I actually like to, to joke that according to Ephesians 4, I retired from full-time ministry when I became a pastor. So it says, it says that the job of pastors is to equip the saints, that's you all, for the work of ministry. You, the church, are called by God to carry the gospel of God with you into every nook and cranny in your life. Again, there's not a square inch in all of creation or in your life over which God does not cry, Mine! It's His! And He wants it offered up to Him as worship. He wants you to live each and every aspect of your life for His glory. It is the church, not professional Christians, that is God's plan for rescuing the world. You see, God in His manifold and perfect wisdom has chosen you, ordinary people, to carry the gospel to the nations and to your community. He's chosen you to make clear to men and women that they can be saved by His strength and grace and power alone. I mean, praise God that He uses a bunch of scrubs like us. I think otherwise being a Christian would be really boring. But God has not called you to boredom. He's called you to a dynamic relationship with himself. He's called you into a community known as the church, and he's placed you onto his mission. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you do, you are to be on mission, whether that is through your vocation or as a missionary in a foreign land. We are called to be God's people, and we are sent to tell others about God. I really, I love in the book of Acts, like there's this really strong struggle that Paul has. He's trying to get to Rome, trying to get to Rome, and he keeps getting thwarted. Can't get to Rome, can't get to Rome. And then he finally gets to Rome at the end. He wants to take the gospel to Rome at the end of the gospel, and he shows up in Rome, and the gospel's already there. It's, it's almost comical. You see, the gospel travels most effectively in the mouths of ordinary men and women in their ordinary lives on ordinary days. This is how God is making himself known. This is how the kingdom of God grows. It's like that mustard seed that's very, very tiny and unimpressive, but it grows up into a great tree 
Before you know it, its, its branches are spread out towards the sun and its leaves are flourishing. The kingdom of God grows through your work. You know and interact with people that I and other people in this room will never meet or interact with. They are your mission field. God has uniquely equipped you to minister to them. He's called you to be the church. He's empowered you to be the church. I'm not going to jump too far ahead in the next week, but, but look at verse 5, just this small snippet. Snippet's a word, I think. Small portion, clipping. It says this, By him, that's Jesus, you were enriched in everything, in all speech and all knowledge. See, enriched in everything. This is what they're saying. The knowledge you have is the gospel, and you are able to speak or share the gospel because you've experienced the gospel. You have what you need to tell others about Jesus. You have what you need to live your life for the glory of God as a homemaker, as a teacher, as a nurse. Whatever it is you do, you have all you need to be on mission there. God has determined the times and the places that we should live. He's called you where you are so that you might bring Him glory where you are. He's called us to be the church and to think of our lives in relation to Jesus. But I don't want us to miss the primary calling here. See, Paul isn't just called to be an apostle, and we're not just called to do whatever it is we do. See, primarily and first and foremost, we are called into relationship with God. God. Relationship with God comes first, and without it, everything else is superfluous. Look again at verse 2. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called the saints, with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Again, being precedes doing it. And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians of who they are in Christ. He's, he's going to remind them who they are in Christ before he gives them the exhortation to live lives worthy of the calling they've received. Um, maybe I'm going to jump back a second. Ver, verse 1 calls attention to this, to Paul's call, right? He's called to be an apostle. Uh, but also to uh, this other character named Sosthenes. Did y'all catch that? Little, like, what's going on there? Why does Paul include and our brother Sosthenes? Like, is he just name-dropping? Is he just with somebody really cool? Kind of. That's what's going on a little bit. Um, you see, we have met Sosthenes before, and Paul wants the Corinthian church to know that Sosthenes is both penning the letter, as Paul dictates it to him, he's kind of like a secretary, but also he's agreeing with the letter, because Sosthenes is from Corinth, and we've met him before. We, we meet him in Acts 18. Uh, Paul uh, uh, is there, he's trying to plant the church in Corinth, and he's ready to give up, and God tells him uh, in verse 9, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And as he usually does, God turns out to be right. Uh, his name is Crispus, he was a, a ruler of the synagogue in that city, he comes to faith. Him and his whole household believe, and a bunch of other people see that he believes, and they hear Paul's message, and they believe, and a bunch of them together are baptized, and the church of the Corinthians is started. Now, because Crispus got saved, the Jewish synagogue needed a new leader, and we learn that that new leader is named Sosthenes. 
right? Because you can't be, they need a new leader because Crispus became a Christian. You can't be the Jewish leader of the synagogue if you're a Christian. And so Crispus is replaced by Sosthenes. Sosthenes really hates Paul. And he ushers together, marshals together a mob of people to take Paul before this judgment seat. And he's trying to get Paul condemned. Basically, long story short, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Uh, the judge is like, this has nothing to do with the law. You're just mad at this Paul guy, so everybody get out. And this is what we read in Acts 18, 17. They all, this is, could be Jews, could be Greeks, could be both. They all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the judge's bench. But none of these things concerned Galileo. I think that's how you say his name. It's a rough one. The, the judge didn't care that they were beating up Sosthenes. That's not what's interesting. What, what's interesting about this is here we have the leader of the anti-Paul movement being beaten up in Acts 18.17 for trying to get Paul condemned. And by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he is saying, our brother Sosthenes. What happened? The call of God. The call of God. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Sosthenes, it seems, has called out to the Lord Jesus in response to the call of God. Do you see that in verse 2? That those who are called as saints are those who have called in response to the call of the Lord out upon the name of Jesus. Romans 10 tells us where everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that includes people who murdered early Christians like Paul. That includes people who tried to get apostles condemned like Sosthenes. And that includes really messy, evil, sinful people like you and me. God is mighty to save. He's able to save any who will call out to him. God had called Paul to himself, had called Sosthenes to himself, called the Corinthians to himself, and he has called us to himself. And what Paul is doing at this, the beginning of this letter, it's almost a uh, delighted or excited shout. He's saying, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who saved you. Don't forget the call of God in your life. I wonder, church, have you forgotten the call of God in your life? I have a really bad memory, and so I can't tell you the, the, the day or the hour uh, that I became a Christian. In fact, I probably can't even tell you how old I was. I was between like 10 and 12, I think. But I'm never going to forget experiencing the call of God. You know, I sat in a, in a church a little larger than this one, some more people. And I remember I'd sat in that church so many times before, heard the gospel preached so many times before, and I'll never forget feeling my heart come to life, feeling like my eyes had been opened, or like I was drawing breath for the first time. I mean, it, it was this amazing experience to be crushed beneath the weight of my sin, confronted with my rebellion against God, realizing that I deserved the wrath of God. And then, just a moment later, recognizing the beauty of the gospel, realizing that even though I was deserved condemnation, Christ had taken that curse in my place 
so that I might have the blessing only He deserves. Relationship with God. You know, never forget uh, how true Thomas Watson's words are from, were for my life at that point, were when I understood the gospel the first time. I didn't know his words at this point, but he famously said, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And what he means is that until we understand the gravity of our sin, we will never appreciate what Jesus did for us when he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the grave so that like him, we can rise when we put our faith in him. Christ is so sweet when you recognize you deserve nothing but wrath and that he's drank that cup of wrath for you until it was empty so that none remained for you and handed to you his cup of blessing. I mean, it's wonderful. I'll, I'll never forget thinking to myself, if Jesus has died for me, how can I do anything but give my life to him? How can I do anything but love him. What happened to make me a Christian when, when God called me? He called me. That's what happened to make me a Christian. And what I mean is not that he merely invited me into the fellowship of his son or that he merely offered me the fellowship of his son, but that he came after me when I did not want fellowship with his son. God broke through all of my resistance. He opened my eyes to see the beauty of Christ. He, he won from me a free and glad submission to Jesus so that I called upon his name and was saved. Friends, the call of God is the personal experience of being chosen by God for eternal life when you by nature are a rebel and a child of wrath. Friends, the hound of heaven hunts down those who are his. The father draws his children home. Jesus seeks and saves the lost. The good shepherd comes after us sheep who have strayed away and find ourselves injured and alone. He does not lose any that are his. I wonder, have you felt the hound of heaven nipping at your heels? Felt the father draw you to himself? Heard the voice of Jesus calling? Call upon his name and be saved. Imagine for me, uh, if you could, that we were all in college together, right? We'll, we'll be at West Virginia because I loved it there. And we're in one of those giant lecture halls. You know, there's like, see, like two, three hundred people, and it is packed out to the max. Famous speaker is coming in to talk to us, and he's just arrived. It's in the first five minutes of his speech. We're all locked in. We're like, this is awesome. This guy's the best. And all of a sudden, a fire alarm goes off. Fire alarm's going off. And he looks at us and says, don't worry. The staff has assured me that this is just a simple fire drill. Please remain seated. And he continues talking. And at that moment, um, one person out of all 300 of us stands up and exits the building in response to the fire alarm. Turns out that the building was actually on fire. You see, what happens when we hear the call of the gospel is that we are being warned of the wrath that is to come, of the terror that is to befall those who are satisfied to sit in their sin. And we have an opportunity to respond 
and to flee into the safety of Christ's arms. But I think more often than not, we are like those who remain seated. I think many of us have remained seated while the alarm of the gospel has sounded in our ears week after week, year after year, and we've never responded. Have you responded to the call of Christ? What you do with Jesus will define you. It's what defines us as a church, actually. And and as I thought about this and and thought about my own testimony, I thought, do you guys know each other's stories? Do you know each other's call stories? How God called you? Uh, What a a really practical way for you to continue um, applying what's happening here in these opening chapters is to talk with one another about how you came to Christ. So today, if you go to lunch after church, ask somebody, how did you come to know Jesus? Share your story with someone this week and be encouraged. Christ calls us to himself. What grace, what great mercy. Notice too, in verse 2, Paul calls the Corinthians, this is perhaps the worst church in the New Testament, he calls them saints. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. There's a lot of confusion about what a, a saint is today. But, but quite simply, the word means to be holy. And anyone who is a Christian is rightly called a saint. Maybe you didn't know it, but if you're in Christ, you are a saint. I wouldn't suggest going around calling yourself Saint Anne or Saint Josh or, or Saint Barb. I don't know how that would go over. Uh, but you are a saint. And you're also, if you look at this verse again, sanctified. To God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. The word sanctified here means, this is crazy, means to be holy. Paul's emphasizing their need to be a holy people of God. Hebrews tells us Christ by his suffering, this is my paraphrase, Christ by his sufferings has sanctified all who believe. That's Hebrews 2.11. See, our holiness comes from the Holy One who has purchased us and indwelt us with his Holy Spirit. Corinthians 3, we'll learn, we'll we'll do this text later on, but don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Holy Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. The holiness of God, the Spirit of God lives in you. Our holiness as Christians is God's holiness in Christ imparted to us. Now, some of the more honest among us are going, I know my heart, and I am not holy. Like, don't get me wrong, I I love Jesus, but I am not holy. I've been sinning all the time. Like, I sped on my way here to church, broke the law, got angry at my kids this morning. You're right. There is a tension in the Christian life there, we, we theology we call the already and the not yet. That there is a sense in which you are already declared right and holy and just in Jesus. And then there is a not yet wherein on the daily we are not holy. Right? So, so positionally or judicially before God, we are holy. We are guiltless. But practically, we're not there yet. Does that make sense? 
Uh, I'm going to attempt an illustration. I'm not sure it's a good one, but you can think about it like when somebody gets a loan for a house and they buy the home and everybody says, you're a homeowner, congratulations. And yeah, they're a homeowner in one sense already, but not yet really because they have to make those payments to become a homeowner. Uh, maybe not a great illustration, but that's kind of what's going on. We, we are holy. We've been called holy. Our, our holiness in the future is sure. God is going to make that come true of us. But right now on the daily, we are to work to become and practice what we've been declared in Christ. So on the one hand, God has ruled as the judge of the cosmos in favor of our innocence because of the substitutionary work of Christ. And he's credited Jesus' goodness to us as if it were our own like Jesus earned the Medal of Honor, and instead of giving the Medal of Honor to Jesus, he puts it around our neck. And we had earned the death penalty, and instead of us taking the death penalty, Christ takes it instead. This is the great exchange of the cross. That's on the one hand. And on the other hand, we are daily becoming in practice what God has declared us in Christ. We're currently in the process of sanctification. And that process won't be complete until Jesus returns or we die. Right? No one ever arrives this side of the second coming or this side of the grave as a Christian. Like anybody that walks around and tells you, I am perfectly holy, and I mean that not in like a future sense, like I'm holy right now, I don't ever sin, uh, they've got really bad theology, right? <laughs> like it's just not true. Hang out with them for 10 minutes and you'll figure out like they're in sin. In fact, they're lying right there, I guess. And that one's not helpful, right? It's harmful. We, we know that we won't ever arrive in this life because we know how desperately we need God's new mercy and new grace each morning, afternoon, and evening. And so, in sum, holiness is both our destiny and our work. God is committed to keeping us believing and making us into what he's called us to be. Again, this is into next week a little bit, but look at verses 8 and 9. He, that's Jesus, will also confirm you to the end, blameless or guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul is confident that the Corinthians will be holy at the end of days because he's confident in the work of God. He knows that they will be who they are meant to be because God is faithful. And so in a way, the Christian life is living proof of the gospel. In it, God rescues unholy us and makes us holy as he is holy. As we keep in step with the Holy Spirit, as we pursue God day by day, we become filled with God's image rather than our own. We become more and more like him. And as we come together in the community of the church, we display his glory more clearly. I think one of my favorite verses is in Ephesians 1, and, and I'm just going to read it to you. It's, chapter, it's verses 22 and 23. They say this, And he, that's God the Father, put everything under his, God the Son, that's Jesus, feet, and appointed him as head over everything for the church. And now listen to verse 23 is a commentary on the church. Over everything for the church. And what's the church? Which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Do you see that? The church is Jesus' body, his fullness. The church is a display of God's glory. What this means is that to belong to Jesus is to belong to the church. Our pursuit of Christ entails pursuing one another. 
Christians are called into relationship with Christ and they are called to be in relationship with one another and that fellowship, that relationship that we share with one another as we pursue God together is called the church. Look at verse 2 again and we're winding down now. Aren't you glad I did two sermons instead of one? We'd be here all day. To God's church at Corinth... Paul's assumption is that those who are Christians in Corinth will belong to the church, that they're a part of the Corinthian church. But then he continues, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints, look here, maybe you could put the word together in there and I think it would be fine, with all those in every place who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both our Lord and theirs. See, see what Paul is doing, I think, subtly is he's drawing attention to the fact that the Corinthians are not their own. They're not independent of everyone else and they can't make up their own rules, which is what they've done a little bit as we'll see later on. He's saying you Corinthians belong to one another and you belong to God. Moreover, you belong to God's church everywhere. You're connected to all these churches by virtue of your union with Christ. And so the way we've talked about this in the past is um, Big C Church and Little C Church, right? Rockfish Valley Baptist Church, we're a Little C Church. That's our local community here. That's us, we're the church. And then there's also Big C Church. That's the church everywhere. That's Rockfish Valley Baptist Church and Capitol Hill Baptist Church and whatever Presbyterian church. It's all the churches, all those who share a faith in the true gospel that Jesus lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and that by faith in him we can have everlasting life. Those that believe that and submit to the word of God, those are the big C church, all of us together. Make sense? And so Paul, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that they are not their own, that they don't belong to themselves. You see, they belong to God to God's church at Corinth. It's not the Corinthians church, it's, it's God's church. This church is God's church. It is not Justin Braun's church. This is not your church. It is God's church. And I think one of the perspectives that helps us understand this a little bit more is that a believer as believers, we have to keep in mind that the church is a body of people, not a building. It is the assembly of believers together, not a building. I mean, in common parlance today, yes, church has taken on a definition that I don't think it was meant to have where it's become a building. I think we do better to call it a meeting house because truly God's house is you and me. That's where God's Holy Spirit dwells. The temple fades away and Christ sends the Spirit of God not to dwell inside of walls anymore, but to dwell inside of men and women like you and me. The church is a people, not a building. Indeed, we are God's collection of messy people who have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and stitched together by the Spirit. And belonging to God is what defines us. This is what defines the Christian. Called to Christ. Called to be his church. And as we'll see next week, empowered to be his church. So I ask once more, what defines you? 
I hope it is not a new car that will depreciate, what beer you will drink, technology that will soon be outdated, what deodorant you wear, what shampoo you use, whether or not you have life insurance. I hope it's not your sexuality or your political party or whatever other counterfeit gods you look to. All of these will fail and leave you empty. My prayer is that you will answer the call of the gospel and define your life, not in relation to things that don't matter, but in relation, in relation to Jesus, because that is all that matters. Everything finds its meaning and significance in light of its relationship with God. We must think of our lives in relation to Jesus. My prayer is that as we do this, we would learn to more to, to be better at being the church. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the call of the gospel, for your steadfastness, for your commitment to us. Thank you that you love us as much as you do on our best day as you do on our worst day, that your love is constant and unfailing. We thank you that you work all things together for the good of us who love you and have been called according to your purpose. For as Paul wrote in Romans, those you foreknew, you predestined to be conformed to the image of your Son so that Jesus would be called the firstborn, the most important among all the brothers. We thank you that those that you've predestined and called will find rest in you that those you've called, you've also justified, and that those you've justified, you've also glorified, that indeed you call us holy and are making us holy. We thank you that holiness and your holy presence is our destiny. We thank you that you are making us more like yourself, making us more into the image of Christ each and every day. Father, help us to consider once more, your calling upon our lives this morning. Help us to uh, re-realize the inexplicable joy of being in relationship with you and with one another in community. Father, bless us as we prepare to sing in response to your mercies and your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.